This is the Black Hole Podcast with host Ryan Millsap. With a vision of how real estate could turn into movies and how movies could turn into money, Millsap set out to build the state's largest film complex. After checking that box, Millsap returned to his entrepreneurial roots, where real estate ventures, entertainment opportunities, nonprofit support, and golf course business deals rule the day. What's next for Ryan Millsap? Listen up, and you'll find out. Today on the podcast, I've got filmmaker and producer, Monty Ross. A Georgia native, Ross went north to New York City to grab the brass ring to collaborate with the edgy artist and never-failing Knicks fan, Mr. Spike Lee. Together, Lee and Ross produced a new type of artistry the world had never seen before, films that boldly examined race relations, urban crime, and poverty, colorism in the black community, and of course, politics, gritty, gritty politics. With films like She's Gotta Have It, Do the Right Thing, Mo Better Blues, Jungle Fever, and Malcolm X under his belt, Ross's career has been prolific and impactful. Let's talk with Monty Ross. Monty, welcome to the podcast. Ah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. Awesome. Is Atlanta your home? Atlanta's not my home. Atlanta would probably be my second home. Uh, original Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha, Nebraska. Of all places. Had, did, you, had, did you live there until when? Like all growing up? All growing up. Uh, 1973, mom, because uh, my, my father uh, passed like in 71. But uh, so mom and my older sister, we went to a movie theater in Omaha, and we see this promotion. This promotion says, Atlanta, the city of the future. Because this was all during, you know, the civil rights movement and after uh, Dr. King was assassinated, all the chaos that was going on in the country. So it's Atlanta, the city too busy to hate, right? So I'm sitting there going, hmm, okay, that looks like a cool place. And the story is what got me down here, and I have to, I have to be honest about this. So I went to, I attended North High School. So one day, this very beautiful black woman. I was about to ask, there's a girl, there's gotta be a girl in this story. Like, whenever it starts, let me be honest about why I moved to a new city. So, so we were, all the fellows were chilling, you know, just chilling, chilling, you know. It's like, Ann wants this very beautiful black woman, right? And we're like, oh my God. <laughs> so she's the new counselor. So she's one of the new counselors. Everybody was like, yo, I think I'm going to change my glasses. <laughs> and so we were all betting, like, who's going to go and meet her, right? And I was like, I'll take the bet, man. Give me the money. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's go see if you're going to do it. And sure enough, I go in and introduce myself. And I say, well, you know, uh, my, my, my counselor, he's pretty good. He's, I, don't, I don't know. You know, got some issues going on with him. And she's like, you're going to stay with your counselor. And I'm going to introduce myself and, and come in and sit down. So... What ended up happening, she told me about Morehouse College. Mm. And her husband had just been assigned to a, a, a company up there. And so she was like, hey, look, there are mo way more, uh, there's a lot more women <laughs> down in Atlanta. <laughs> and you will have a good time. But first, I want you to concentrate on your education. And sure enough, man, I filled out. She said, sit here right now. And I filled out the application and, and sent it in. So she was very instrumental in uh deterring me <laughs> and getting me on the right track. And, and that's, that, that started my journey uh, to, to come here to, to Atlanta. So I have deep roots in Nebraska. Oh, wow. Have you ever heard of a town in the north central part of Nebraska called Valentine? Um, I have heard of that, yes, yes. My mother grew up in Valentine, Nebraska. Oh, my, wow. my grandfather was a cattle rancher okay. just outside of Valentine, Nebraska uh -huh. in a little town called Woodlake. Yes, yes. But um, I've spent a lot of time in Omaha. Okay. A lot of time in Nebraska. Yeah. Growing up, I mean, we spent, you know, weeks to months every summer in Nebraska during hay season. Wow. To go out and help, yeah. you know, you know, bale the hay. Now, I was little, so I did, a, there were a lot of times I didn't do any work. Mostly I just rode four wheelers around and, right. you know, had fun while right. the adults drove tractors and baled hay. But, um, but I love that state. And it's wow. a great place to grow up. Yeah. I mean, wh what were some of the highlights of Omaha? 
Like, what are the things you look back and say, God, that was a good life? Well, for me, uh, Omaha was, like you said, uh, it was something about uh, the early morning sun coming through our house, right? And uh, so, like, after after Dad passed, we moved in with uh, my great-grandmother, and it was something about the way the sun would come in, the birds chirping. I don't know. I don't know why that hit me and struck with me. Uh, but early morning in, in Nebraska was something uh, that that I always held near and dear, and it just it just seemed to to get my motor running, right? And so it's, the Midwest, I think what I love about the Midwest is the can-do spirit. Like you will get up and make something happen. You know, whatever it is that you're trying to do, you have to get up early in the morning. Uh, and, and you mentioned, you know, what you did, uh, your family did, but my father was a, uh, uh, he owned a hardware store. So he was one of the first African-Americans to own a hardware store. And so for him, it was up in the morning. You know, you got to grind, you know, and you got to make things happen. And so that, for me, just growing up in general was all about you just make it happen, you know. And uh, I always wanted to know what a major city was like, you know, what Chicago was like, what New York was like, what L.A. was like, but being right there in the middle of the country. And it was really interesting. Uh, Warren Buffett had a profound impact, but the Mutual of Omaha, Wild Kingdom, right? <laughs> of all things, would come on every Sunday evening, and then a Disney program would come on afterwards. But the Mutual of Omaha the insurance company had a profound impact. And so uh, one incident I remember real quick was uh, we were getting ready to go look for summer jobs, a friend of mine, and we had just gotten out of art class. And so we had these huge busts, you know, <laughs> that we had made this, this, these sculptures. And so we're going to look for part-time jobs. And little did we know, right, there was a tornado. And the tornado came right down the middle of uh, Dodge Street. And uh, so he's like, nah, man, we got to get find these jobs. So we were going to uh, an amusement park. And we kept progressively going toward the, the amusement park, not realizing that it was a tornado. So finally they take us off of the bus and say, what do you guys got there? You know, I said, no, 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 we, we just, no, we, this is our art projects. And they were like, okay, okay. So we go to the Mutual of Omaha underground, and there's a huge underground facility, you know, right out of some movie or something like that. So we go like, like way below underground and we walk into this whole facility and it's like command central so they had the tornado up they had you know weather conditions and stuff like that we were like yo man this is spooky <laughs> and i said no no guys come in here we got cokes and you guys sit down we got refreshments for you and where you guys at you know and then we, they told us it was a major tornado and we know and they had all of the information there and everything so uh, those kind of experiences, I started learning the strategic air command was there as well. Um, when 9-11 happened, that force was, the Air Force, you know, uh, uh, the command took place there and, and so on and so forth. So Omaha is like, it's, it's, you say Omaha and people go like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a small country town, but it's, it's more than that. It's very vibrant. And so for me, that was, that was, those are some of the kind of experiences that I had that, you know, I really love it. I was a kid who played... Um, basketball a lot and I had the glasses I had the flat feet and I had a weak jump shot right so <laughs> so there was this place called the Bryant Center and the Bryant Center came about uh after after the small riot that happened after Dr. King was assassinated and I used to play there all the time I used to play there all the time and I kept getting better and better and better so it was places like that that you know a lot of celebrities would come through, a lot of a lot of sports icons, Johnny Rogers and others, and other people like that, Gail Sayers, uh, Bob Gibson, you know. And so that was our inspiration point uh, for me. So for me, those kinds of like those small experiences, the large experiences, and of course Warren Buffett uh, being there, and Warren Buffett's, uh, I think it was. Uh, Either his sister or one of the relatives told my mom they had gone to school together and said, if your kids ever go to school, go to college, that there's a scholarship fund that's available and all they had to do is keep a C average. And so that became really important to, uh, to, to my college education. Yeah. So you get into Morehouse. Yeah. And you come down, what year is that? 73? This is 1975. 1975. And how, what at Morehouse makes you want to get into film and television? Morehouse, uh, first I hit Atlanta and everything that's said in that promo 
at the movie theater kicked in and I was just like, wow, this is a city, you know, on the move. So I get to Morehouse, the first one on campus this day. So I got a big duffel bag and a big foot locker and some other locations. <laughs> and I'm toting all this stuff, man, on the campus. I'm like, wow. And I was just impressed with the landscape and the fact that it was a, a total consortium of, of Morehouse and Spellman and Clark and Morris Brown. And so I finally get in, I finally get my room. But the fact that uh, it was bustling with activity, right? I was just like, wow, you know, this is, this is just really, really major. So classes start. And it's like, you got to be a Morehouse man. And I was like, oh, man, I don't know if I'm going to make it. <laughs> what is that? What is a Morehouse man? It's just, it's just a rich tradition. And you're expected to be a leader. Whatever, whatever major you choose, whatever you want to do in life, you're expected to take a leadership position, period. And that is your purpose for being here. And that starts from day one. But I was kind of like, ah, it felt too tight. I was like, I, I don't know if I can be that kind of leader. So I go across uh, the street, and Clark College is directly across the street. There's a sign that says uh, the Bad Seed auditions. And so I'm looking, I'm looking, <laughs> open up the door where the theater, the theater department is, and they're kind of like ragtag and everything is just kind of like, yeah, it's kind of disheveled a little bit. And I'm like, uh, so where are the auditions? Can anybody <laughs> let me know? And everybody's like, I don't know. You got to see this lady, Joan Lewis. Joan, she's the dean of the department, whatever. So I couldn't find Joan and anything. So it wasn't a turnoff for me. It was, I'm at home. And so the theater became my um, my spot. The theater became my spot. So I auditioned, learned all my lines. I knew my lines. I knew everybody else's lines and everything. So I was at home. So class was over at Morehouse. As soon as class was, out, was over, I was over at the theater. And Joan Lewis ran the theater department like an iron fist, you know. You couldn't do anything, you know. And so sometimes it's 3 in the morning and we're running plays, right? We're <laughs> running the show. Well, uh, I happened to meet some really good, cool people. Samuel L. Jackson. Come on. Is there. You're in, His, you're in theater group with Samuel L. Jackson. I'm in, I'm in a theater group with Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, his girlfriend at the time was Latanya. Tanya Richardson. Mm -hmm. There's a guy named Kenny Leon, and Kenny Leon is well-respected director now, Broadway film. So he was there. And so on spring break, uh, his girlfriend would come up, and that was Angela Bassett. Mm. Um, and so we all were uh, Bill Nunn. It's a low-achieving group that you're running around with. <laughs> and at the time, though, <laughs> but at the time, uh, everybody had something to contribute to each other. So Latanya's thing was this. Look, you're in the group now. I'm like, I am? Okay. <laughs> well, I'm in the group. Whatever you say, right? I'm a freshman. She's like, look, we have this big potluck dinner at my house, and just come. You want to be in the group. And sure enough, it was like uh, many, many actors and performers from Atlanta, from the Atlanta scene were there, and we all just all had a big potluck dinner and just talked shop. And it was very supportive. Very supportive, and it's very unlike that now. But back then, that was that was the uh, core group, and it's something Latanya even does today. It's like if you're in town, if you're in, wherever she is, New York, L.A., you gotta stop what you're doing, and you're gonna go potluck. You're gonna go talk to writers and directors, and 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 have that you know camaraderie with each other. And so from that, that as a freshman, I was I was hooked. And so Bill Nunn, Sam. They all became, we all became buddies. And so whatever I always felt, whatever Sam did, whatever Bill did, okay, I could do it too. And, and so my time there at, at, at um, Morehouse was, uh, uh, was, was, that kind of, was that kind of magic. Spike was doing the same thing. He would come over, but Spike was really quiet, you know, maybe a buck ten. Maybe he weighed a buck. Maybe yeah. After a buck he got ten. out of the pool, he was a buck ten. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> big fro, big afro, right? And he always had a, a, a date book, and he always had a pen, right? So, so we didn't know that he was journaling. And so for him, he would come to the plays 
watch our plays, whatever we were doing. And he was making all these notes, just making tons of notes. So uh, my cash got low, and I had to go. I went to, I attended three uh, HBCUs. So my minister in Omaha hooked me up with a college called uh, uh, Bishop College in Dallas, Texas. But I wanted to come back, and then Clark gave me a scholarship. So I ended up going back to Clark College. So little did I Wait, what know, happened to the Omaha money? I thought the Omaha scholarship. No, the Omaha scholarship kept going. It did, because uh, she didn't matter. She said, as long as you get a C average and as long as you're in school. C average and university. And the university. But why'd they stop paying? Did they keep paying for Morehouse? Uh, no. They, no. What happened, my Morehouse, my Morehouse uh, financial aid started to run out. Mm, mm. And so the, I'm the, like, the Omaha scholarship wasn't a full scholarship. It wasn't a it was full a partial scholarship. scholarship. It was partial scholarship. It was partial scholarship. Yeah, it was partial. Um, I was hustling for financial aid back then <laughs> that was my thing uh but i loved it too but um so what was beginning to happen was the spike was it was always making those and, and checking checking uh us out so one day he's like hey man i need a voiceover so i go do a voiceover for his clients and he gets an a and he's like okay man um you know, when you start talking about girls, you know, and the stuff that you're doing, you know, I said, yo, man, yo, 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 <laughs> keep that quiet, keep that quiet. <laughs> so I said, no, man, I got to do a photo shoot, man. So would you mind, you know, I don't know who you're dating right now. Would you mind if, if y'all, I was like, come on, man, I can't. He's like, nah, please, man, I'm just going to shoot your hands, right? <laughs> so I said, I It'll told be totally him. anonymous. <laughs> so, <laughs> I told her, and she's like, so "Okay." Like, so you thought to yourself, "Which of the girls will I invite?" Right. <laughs> so he's like taking the pictures and everything mm. else. And so, but little did I know, he's making notes and he's making all of these notes, right? So he turns the stuff into his class, gets another A, and then his, his classmates are like, "That's no fair." He goes and gets money. Or he goes and gets any of the actors over there, and all of his stuff is good. And, and Dr. Eichelberger, who's a really uh, one of our mentors, is like, "Well, hey, you know, that's what you do. You know, you you know, this is this is a part of like what you do as a producer and as a director and as a writer. You go get the best people, so on and so forth." And 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 so his classmates were like, "Ah, oh, that's unfair. That's unfair." But for me, these these were the beginnings of like uh, the spike that that uh, was to come. Now he didn't even know he wanted to be a filmmaker. And he didn't declare his major until his junior year, and he had to. He goes home, and uh, a good friend of the Delta Sigma Theta, she was president of the Delta Sigma Theta, she gave him a camera, eight millimeter camera. And he films uh, that summer, and he comes back, and he showed us, it was a blackout in New York. So he filmed, and we could see that Spike had promise. It was like, okay. I think I think you really have something. I think you're storytelling. It's like, ah, man. It was, I was like, Spike, don't don't grumble, man. I said, I think you really, you have an eye, and you know, I think you should just 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 be good to yourself. And um, so, from those experiences, right, we start to like really bond around film, and that's when that's when the film bug hits. And then we get a grant, uh, Fulton County, uh, the Fulton County Arts Commission. Uh, issued a grant, and uh, we applied for the grant, and we got it. So Spike wrote the script. I acted in uh, acted in this piece. It was just like a short 15, 20-minute film. And we actually did posters and promotion for it. So, again, we didn't know, and we took it to all the campuses and screened it. Again, you guys these, are like 20 yeah, at the time. How is that? Right? We're like 20. And so we didn't know, like... Uh, all of this was us leading to us being entrepreneurs in film, but it was the experience. We we would talk about it. We would find uh, financial resources. We would get the equipment because Dr. Eichelberger was like, hey, if you guys are going to go out and make a film, go make a film, put all of it together. And this was back in the days of 8-millimeter filmmaking, right? So you literally had film. You literally had a splicer. You literally had to chop, cut, and paste the film. So and you really had to do the sound and, and all of the things that come come with uh, filmmaking and that hands-on uh, um, production. But we got a, uh, we, we received grants. We taught uh, young people. We had one summer we taught uh, uh, about 25 young people. 
they got paid, they got summer jobs, and they made a film. We screened the film. We won a U.S. Department of War uh, uh, for labor uh, and excellence. And so all of this was was always starting. And then when Spike came back to show his first film, uh, The Answer, everybody uh, who screened said, uh-oh, Spike, I think you really, really have something. Because this time he's in New York at NYU. Gets ready to do his thesis film audition and land a lead role. And I'm going to uh, New York. And this good friend of mine, uh, Al Cooper, uh, is, is from Atlanta. And Al, I don't know what it was, but Al was always like, if I was going somewhere, I had the suitcase. I was getting ready to catch the bus to go to the airport. He said, where you going? I said, I'm going to New York, man. So what you going to do? I said, me and Spike working on movies. Working on movies? What? He said, no, man. I said, yeah, man. Sorry, man. Well, good luck with that, right? So we go to Joe's um, Bedside Barbershop. And Spike's classmates decide they didn't want to be hanging out with him past the second day. So Spike's like, yo, Monty, man, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> You're going to have to do Crew 2. <laughs> so, <laughs> crew <of> 2. <laughs> so I'm driving the, 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 the cargo van. I'm picking up equipment. And this was the first time me driving in New York. So it was crazy the way New Yorkers were driving, man. So I'm learning how to drive in New York, maneuver the bridges, maneuver equipment and everything. And then when we came, we started shooting. So I had to help set up the scenes. And then Ernest is like, oh, Monty, would you mind helping with lighting? I said, yeah. So I would sit where I was going to sit. And he said, okay, move the light to your left. Okay, that's good. That's good. That's good. Okay, great, great, Because you were the star and the key grip. At the same time, man. And so Spike was like, okay, Monty, take your glasses off. And get in the character. By this time, I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like, you know, and then they're like really demanding. Like, okay, man, you, you know. You can't move. You can't do this. I'm like, okay, man. I said, I'm feeling stiff, man. Let me let me loosen up, man. And they're like, no, and because they were just still learning about you know how to really move the camera and that sort of thing. And so um, we get the film made. But I really get. But what I really loved about that experience was Ernest Dickerson as the DP. And Ernest Dickerson, I remember the first night of, of filming, you know, it, uh, we, we go to an alley and we had the cargo van with the lights on and we had the car in front of it and I had to help with one of the lights, right? And so he says, Ernest, Ernest goes, mind what I want you to do is like, you're going to go like here from your left and then you're going to cross it over to your body like this, you're going to cross it over. And so what it was, we were simulating driving, right? And so Ernest was on the, on the top of the car filming inside, that sort of thing. And so I was like really, really happy. For some reason, I was like, yo, it was clicking in that this is what independent filmmaking is. And this is how much fun you're going to... And so for me, I'm listening to, you know, some of the other crew members, the quote-unquote the professional ones, complain and that sort of thing. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm having a blast. I'm having a, such a good time learning, you know, both parts of it. And then when the film won a Student Academy Award, I was like, wow, you know, hard work pays off. And uh, Entertainment Tonight did the story. And so we're all sitting around, you know, watching the television and it pops up. Here it is, here's the story, you know. And I was like, oh, snap. Year later, we had a, uh, we got an agent. And a year later, nothing. We couldn't even get an after-school special. We couldn't get, get anything. So the agent calls us and he's like, How old are you guys at this point? Bring maybe, me along the timeline. Maybe 24 Okay, okay. So we're like, he's like, can't do anything for you. I'm sorry, click. And so Spike is like, man, what are we going to do? So we get part-time jobs. So my part, my job down here in Atlanta, uh, Spike is in New York, and I'm, I'm down here in Atlanta. So I'm doing children's theater. I'm doing four shows a day. Where you're performing, I'm performing four children. Four children, four children, four teenagers all around Atlanta, right? And uh, I think... Do you remember how much you were making? Wasn't a idea? lot. Wasn't a lot. And then I had a part-time job <laughs> at night. 
Because <laughs> this has been like 1978 or something, right? 70, 78, 79. Yeah. Well, actually 80. started like 81. 82, okay, 81, right. 82. 82. So it's post all the 70s inflation. So it wasn't like you were making like five bucks nah. a day. It was making you were making 50 bucks. Right. <laughs> so uh, so if I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm doing all this stuff, but at night I had a paper route. So I'm doing children's shows all day. Go pick the kids up from school because I had at this point I had gotten married foolishly. Um, anyway, that's a long <laughs> story. Young love. So so I had a stepson and I had my daughter and so I'm picking them up, right? And and I'm I'm babysitting them, babysitting them. You already had a daughter yeah. at 25. Somewhere around there, yes, I sure did. She was born in uh, 1981. 1981. 1981. So I'm double duty with them, and and the wife comes home, right? And then I, I'm I'm hanging out trying to find plays and other things to work because I had an agreement with her, and we agreed like as long as the bills were paid, I could pursue this 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 career, and. Uh, and then at 12 midnight to 6 in the morning, I had two paper routes. I was only supposed to have one, but I had a Wall Street Journal and a New York Times. <laughs> so <laughs> I had, the, I had the, the, the New York Times, and then I would go and deliver the Wall Street Journal downtown Atlanta. So different areas. Different areas, right. So uh, Two I completely kept, separate routes. <laughs> I kept them separate. <laughs> I kept them separate, mm -hmm. right. So... The Wall Street Journal route, though, was only like five stops. And you go in this, this, these office buildings, and it was mm, like, wow, wow, And drop, wow, drop wow, big, wow, wow. yeah. And drop 15 out. of them or 20 of them in oh, per office building. Maybe like seven or eight. Okay. And you're done for you're the done. night. Yeah. Right. So the paper route stays among the group. Bill Nunn does the paper route. <laughs> hey, Bill. I got to go to Atlanta. I got to go to New York to work with Spike. Well, you pick up my paper route. We pick up the paper route. So Bill had the, the paper route. So, I mean, between all of us, you know, they all did the paper route because it was so easy. You just go, wop, 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 pick up 150 bucks. Nobody knows the difference. And we were up all night anyway. We just that just that, that kind of uh, group of people. And then after, I would always go over to Bill Nunn's house. And and uh, I would always have to tell him what we did in New York, right? And and whether we made it or not. And so finally, finally, she's got a habit comes around. And so when she's got a habit comes around, um, I become the uh, production supervisor on the film. And what happened? We tried to do a film before that called The Messenger, and that didn't work out. So. Where's the funding for this stuff coming from? Okay, so Spike had gotten, Spike got a, uh, Spike got a grant from the New York State's Art Council, and he had a year to use it. And they said, like, we don't care what film, you got a year to use the money, right? So we tried to use it on the Messenger, that didn't work. So, um, so we still had time. So we still had time, and we got an independent, um, uh, independent investor, and he had put in like twenty thousand. He said, look, guys, man. If you can make the movie for this twenty, cool. But if you, if you can't, I, I can't keep putting in money. So he was like, "I could go get some money for you." I said, "No, no, no. We don't want that money. We don't want that. <laughs> I can go get some money. For I could go. It's we gonna like, come no. in paper sacks." <laughs> We're like, "No, we don't want that money. We don't want that money." So basically, he says, uh, "He says, okay, look, guys, what are you gonna do?" So we pull the plug. But before we pull the plug, the production manager comes over and talks to Spike. So now Spike is maybe weighing about 115. And the guy just stands up and just starts going in on Spike. So when he did, I was like, I said, hey, excuse me, excuse me, what, what, what are you doing? So I stood up. I said, look, if, you, if you're going to go in on Spike and, you know, you think Spike's misleading you, that sort of thing. So I took my glasses off. I said, we just go outside. Let's just settle this and just go outside, man. You're not going to stand over Spike and... In my territory, if you start saying stuff the way you're saying it, you just let's go settle it. And then that way you don't have to, oh man, oh and so he leaves, right? I said, Spike, we don't have to do that, man. Let me be let me be the production manager on the next job. He said, My I said, man, let me be the production manager. And and he's like, I, I said, Spike, in theater, I, 
we put together independent productions all the time. If we're going to do Shakespeare and we don't have the costumes for Shakespeare, we're going to take what we have, we're going to take the props that we have, we're going to turn it into a contemporary version of Shakespeare and call it experimental. He says, you guys do stuff like that? I said, oh, it's done all the time. That's just what we do. So I like to bring that energy to, to film. He said, okay, fine. So he wrote the script for uh, She's Gotta Have It. He said, man, I'm going to make something commercial. It's got to be commercial. It's got to be commercial. And Spike had this thing where he would get up to emphasize his point. He'd run and he'd throw his fist in the air like, ah, ah. <laughs> It's not this something. So, so that was his thing. That was his way to motivate himself. And he's like, okay, man, so you're going to be the production. Star. He'd run around with his fist in the air Pumping making circles. Like, right, yeah, right. uh-huh, uh-huh. That kind of thing. Uh-huh. You know, and, uh, you know, screaming like, man, fire it up, fire it up, fire it up, fire it up. I was like, okay, fire it up, fire it up. <laughs> so. Uh, Got to get yourself going. He writes the script. And I'm like, great. But, he, but one of the things that Spike did that was really good. He went and did a survey, put together a 100 question survey, and he asked like 40 women, you know, their personal secrets, and he recorded all of this. So he did a lot of research. Their personal secrets about what? About sex and their relationships. Oh, about the relationships. About their relationships. Not like sex techniques. Or maybe both. Both. But, well, some were very candid. Some, some were, uh, we, there was some very, very candid conversations, you know, and they were like, look, it's such sex. Everybody has it, you know. But from that, we we started to glean that 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 you know women talk about sex, and they have different kind of experiences, and they want to talk about it. You know, that's just what they do. So there was a lot of self confidence. So that helped us really understand the character of Nola Dolly. Women talk about sex way more than men talk about sex. Uh, yes, at and least in the ways that you're referring for, to. And we found out, and we were like, okay, all right, and so. Uh, armed with that research, armed with uh, uh, that, then, then we sat down and Spike's place at this time, right, uh, one thirty-two Adelphi. So when you see it, you're always thinking it's it's the it's the it's the brownstone, but it's not. It's a small sidewalk that leads to this to this small loft space, maybe. 100 square feet, maybe, with a big round table on it, right? And he had a big poster of Michael Jordan on it and had a big phone. So that's what Spike and I stayed to do. She's got to have it in Brooklyn. And this was during the time. This is right during the time where, you know, Brooklyn and New York. 100 square feet, 10 by 10. Very small, man. It was enough for his bed. I had a cot that I had gotten off, <laughs> off of the street. I had a cot, and and then the, the stereo system was always to my left, so I was in charge of DJing and moving the records around on the, 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 the turning the radio up. Man, put on WBLS, whatever, whatever, right? And and so that and and then the big table was our the big round table was our conference table, and so that's where we sat and we really figured it out. And I said, hey, Spike, based on and and so we spent this summer. We got a limited partnership, and we. Got the limited partnership. We had the grant, and uh, friends came by and donated money. Right, but we still needed more because uh, we were. At, uh, it was a hundred thousand dollars then. And Jim Jarmish, who did uh, *Strangers in Paradise*, has set the standard pretty much that you take a hundred thousand dollars, shoot it on uh, Super 16, and then blow it up to 35. And Irwin Young uh, at Duart Labs was like, okay, if you guys, if that's your budget, I'll work with you. So Duart came in and said, we'll blow up your print from Super 16 to 35 for a reasonable cost, right? And so now that became like the, the underground way that uh, the indie film scene was starting to emerge, right? So everybody did the same thing. You get the limited partnership, you get 10 partners at 10, mm-hmm. right? You take $100,000 and you shoot your movie for, you know, that's your budget, and then you're going to blow up your film, and then hope you get you know distribution afterwards, right? So that wasn't happening with us at all, and so we're we're going to sits, we're at uh, nightclubs, 
music blasting. Yo, man, what kind of movie you guys want to do? Yo, man, can we go outside, man? Can we hear you? He's like, no, man, I got to stay here, man, because I got to watch the bartenders, whatever. Tell me more about this movie, man. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, wow, man. So anyway, the story is like, and I'm, I'm like Spike, man. And Spike, and Spike is like trying to, well, it starts like this, blah, blah, blah. And, and it's like, what happened, man? You guys want something to drink? It's like, okay, man, this this ain't going to work, right? So we, we're going all around Brooklyn to these different places. Diff- everybody's just inviting us in. And, and the, the potential investors are all, they all had their quirks and idiosyncrasies in and of themselves. So there's one guy, Jeffrey Garfield. Come up, man. Come up to Harlem, man. So we go up to Harlem, man, and and he says, man, sorry, we don't have air conditioning, so it's hot, so we're sweating, and we're waiting on the investor. You know, uh, she's running for office. And he says, yeah, she's got money, man. She's loaded. She's loaded. You're like, okay, man, we're sweating, man. When is she gonna show up? So two hours later, I'm sorry, man, she didn't show up, but I'm telling you, she's loaded. She's loaded. <laughs> so we going back on the train, and I said, Spike, I said, Spike, listen, man. Let's just take the amount of money that we got. I think we had around $35,000. I said, Spike, let's take the thirty-five, And I'm going to break the script down for you even more, right? Now, mind you, I didn't have the film school approach to breaking the script down. I didn't have that at all. Might so I go blessing. back. I say, look, man, we got about thirty. You say you got about $30,000. So you got to have something to live on. I got to have something to get back down to Atlanta. So we got to make this film really cheap. I said, listen, man, what creative concessions can you come up with? He said, what do you mean? I need, I said, listen, man, I told you in theater, we make concessions. If we don't have it, we, we improvise. We do a lot of other things. I said, Spike, what, what creative concessions can you give me? He said, wow. What if people talk directly to the screen? I raised my hand. I said, yeah, man, okay. That's fine with me. That's fine with me. That works. You know, I'll break the fourth wall. Yeah. He's like, yeah, we'll do that. He said, what about stoops? I said, yeah, okay, people are going to be on stoops, and fine, great. I said, what about park benches? He says, park benches. I said, park, let's go. What about the street corners? He said, I said, fine. So we went and did a location scout, Ernest and everybody. We go and do a location scout. Production uh, uh, supervisor, uh, manager was, uh, the uh, production designer was Wynn Thomas at the time. So we all do these scouts, and that became... Again, so what, what's locking in my head as a production supervisor is I'm really taking it serious, and I'm, like, really enjoying the experience. Again, just as I uh, enjoyed the experience on uh, Joe's Best Eye Barbershop. So we lock in these locations. Those are the creative concessions. And I said, Spike, I can get it made. I said, we have just enough money for you to live on, me to get back to Atlanta, and we can get this done in 14 days. Hell no, hell no. So he runs around again with the fifth, no money, three weeks. You gotta figure it out, three weeks. I said, Spike, Spike, sit down, sit down, man. Sit down, I can't give you no three weeks with what we have, and we cannot go into those. Keep talking to people to keep raising money. He said, man, we gotta do so. I said, Spike, 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 I got you in 14 days. Listen, no fist pumping or anything else. I'm gonna take a nap. I'm gonna go to sleep. I'm gonna take a nap because I'm really tired. But I, I have figured it out. If we do it like that, I go to sleep. I wake up and I'm looking. I'm looking, and then Spike is standing over me. Are you sure you can get it done in 14 days, Monty? 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 Are you sure you can get it done, Spike? Spike? Yeah, man. I, I, if we follow the plan, we can get it done in, in 14 days. If we get all the crew, we get everybody to agree to this this plan based on the amount of money that we have right now, we can shoot the film and get it done in 14 days. He's like, all right, man, all right. We wound up getting it done in 12 days. Amazing. Amazing. In 12 days. And it was because the creative concessions, he bought into it, Ernest bought into it, but it made the production move Quickly, so that first six days we were just moving. We were going from one location. Well, yeah, you to were the running, next. running from the landowners. <laughs> running from the <laughs> landowners. Yeah. What's the guy doing down on my stoop? You know, you know. And, and <laughs> we got to film this fast before the landowners tell us we yeah. can't use the stoop. 
it's all of that, man. And the park bench, you know, uh, we're shooting in the park. And Probably then, need a permit for that, too. You got to do this stuff fast. This we is need like. need a permit, right. And the guy comes over and he's like, you, can, you guys can't film it. It's a public park. And he's like, oh, wait a minute, man. Come on, let's go buy you lunch. Come on, I'm going to go tell you what's going on. So I really go buy the lunch for By him. By the time he's done, so the now, scene's finished. Right. I come <laughs> back and they're like, oh, yeah, see if they believe it, man. Always see you later. <laughs> we out. So it was that kind of it was that kind of shoot, mm -hmm. you know, all the pirate, all pirate the, moves all the time, just pirate moves, just mm -hmm. taking full advantage of the situation. So this, the first six days, but during that first week, we're shooting, and uh, by this time we had started asking friends for 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 hundred dollar donations, and the money's coming in. So by Wednesday though, we had a payroll to meet. We still had a payroll to meet that Friday, but this Wednesday we're shooting. And we're shooting at Spike's uncle's house. And you're shooting, but you have no idea how you're gonna pay everybody? Well, those who wanted to get paid. Now some <laughs> some had deferred. And some like say, that. like, when you guys get it, just pay me or or just just pay me, just pay me the uh, train fare back and forth from mm -hmm. Manhattan over here, wherever they were coming from. So Spike's uncle runs to the basement and everybody's like, Where is he going? He comes back up with this champagne. And I'm telling Spike, hey man, maybe we should just tell everybody that we're not gonna make payroll. It's like, well, what so he comes back up with the champagne, he passes it all out, passes out the cups and everything, and he opens it up, he starts pouring it, right? And everybody's like, he says, everybody, come on, we're going to toast, go to toast. He says, listen, I don't know what you young people are doing, I don't know where this film is going or where anything, but whatever Spike is trying to do, we're here to support it. And Spike's like, man, don't say nothing, don't say nothing. I was like, okay, cool, cool, cool. So he toasts. And, and uh, so we have a great toast. And, you know, he says, listen, I want you guys to really just keep going forward and make your film. Just keep doing, you know, the best you can with what you got, right? And so that Thursday, that Friday, it was when a lot of checks came in. And we, I ran to the bank, deposited the checks, and we made payroll, right? So that was the first six days down. And then the next six days, we were in a loft. Um, and, and the guy who owned the loft... At the time, he had a restaurant downstairs. So he had this real great restaurant. It's in, it's in Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights. You know, it was a uh, um, really nice spot. And so he was upstairs. And so he comes up and he says, I need $1,000 right now. I'm like, damn, man. Okay. You need it right now? Right now. Come on, guys. I need $1,000, right? So he paid him $1,000, man. And he said, yeah, yeah. He says, okay. I don't know what you guys are going to be doing up here, but I better not hear anything. And I better not see anything. All right, guys. All right. <laughs> so he goes back downstairs or whatever. And so we film. We get to uh, that Saturday. And around 2 o'clock, Spike says, Monty, uh, we shot everything. I said, for real? He said, man, we, sh we shot everything. Because what I was doing was every day prepping the next day. And so a lot of times I didn't, we didn't even have a first AD. And sometimes they would complain. I was like, look, guys, I got to prep the next day. I would do first AD work, but I got to prep the next day so we're ready for the next day. And that's how we started working together. And so uh, Spike, I told Spike, hey, man, well, whatever. Let's just make up some stuff, man, while we, while we have everybody here. Don't call it yet. And so the, the end credits for She's Got to Have It. It was just all improv. And then Nola's um, final scene, all of that stuff was was all improv. And then finally he said, all right, man, give the speech, give the speech. I gave the speech and we hear rap. And so uh, for Spike, he really liked the way we worked together. And what he found was that uh, making those creative concessions loosened him up from this everything having to be a traditional approach. Mm -hmm. And little did we know, uh, we get to the San Francisco Film Festival that Island Pictures, uh, and this was Chris Blackwell's company at the time. And at the time, Chris Blackwell had released, what, Bob Marley uh, through Island Records. And so he was looking for, you know, people who were doing cutting-edge work. And so when his folks saw She's Gotta Have It, they loved it, and they offered us a deal for, for uh, back then the going rate was around $450,000. So they put $450,000 on the table. They helped us with the... Uh, for the next picture? Is that what no, that was? No, that was for that was for the advance. Of, oh, an advance. Of, for, wow. for She's Gotta Have It. And it also helped us with the 35-millimeter uh, uh, print and, and everything. And then um, Chris authorized uh, $2.3, $2.4 million for marketing and promotion. Wow. So... 
that helped the film tremendously. And Spike was kind of reticent at first, kind of hesitant, and, and, and then he started really trusting the marketing process because what happened, uh, Russell Swartz, Kerry Brokaw, uh, Laura Parker, they were, at, they were the brain trust at, at Ireland. They positioned the film so that the film would feel like a major studio had released this really nice uh, film that's a comedy that's a little different. It's in black and white. It doesn't have any stars. But also what was helping us back then was the blockbuster movie came out in July. But in August, you still, if you were in New York, you still were coupled up. You wanted some place to go. <laughs> you know, you wanted to go and see something a little different than what you had seen, you know, whether it's a whatever it was, whether it's close encounters or whatever the big movie was. Now it's like, okay, you gotta get through the summer, right? And you gotta be able to sit down and hold a conversation. So She's Gotta Have It became that type of film. So the movie opened in uh Lincoln Center, one theater. And uh Tom Brokaw, who was an anchor at the time, uh, NBC News was on his way home and he couldn't get home because, you know, all the commotion that she's got to have it was happening. So he goes on the next night and he says, man, he says, it's rare that things happen like this. I couldn't get home last night. And I finally did get home. But uh, there's this movie called She's Got to Have It. And the filmmakers are from uh, Brooklyn, New York. And his name is Spike Lee. They showed the trailer. And that helped sales tremendously so now all around the country people wanted to see the movie so it was a slow rollout um but the movie ended up grossing like 6.9 million and uh, so for for us to actually see all this activity and one of the things about island I mean, we eventually had to do an audit but one of the things about them they completely opened up the books and really let us see their process in terms of their approach to marketing and promoting the movie. And to this day, I still held on. I've held on to all of that material. And I teach it in classes so that, you know, young people can really understand what happens when somebody invests in your film and, and how if you have the right people, you know, helping you position your film and, and that sort of thing. Uh, good things, you know, can happen despite despite where we are right now. Um can of she's got to have it. It, it there's always going to be a sweetheart project when it comes to film you know because somebody's eventually going to figure out how to get it right and that was the era that really launched um so many so many careers and from that we met sean daniels and sean daniels uh ended up at universal uh, when we did do the right thing but sean daniels ended up saying okay i want to introduce um through Universal, I want to introduce independent filmmakers. You've done your independent film. Why don't you come to L.A. and come to Universal and do that? But um, and so that became that thing as far as as far as Sean Daniels and that sort of thing. But Columbia Pictures, right? When we get ready to do the school days, so Columbia Pictures, right, uh, gets bought by Coca Cola, and they hear that's right, yeah. And they hear that we're making a movie in Atlanta. So by this time, I had come back to Atlanta, and I set up an office near uh, the campus of uh, Clark and Morehouse and everything. So the office. And so word of mouth spreads. And I don't know how people found the address, but they found the address. It was flooded with headshots, you know. This, this was no internet back then. This was he, uh, real headshots, real mail. People were showing up, crew members were showing up, and Atlanta was on fire. And so Norman Bielowitz, Norman Bielowitz was the uh, economic uh, development director. And Norman Bielowitz came up to me and says, man, this is what we're talking about. So School Days had a lot to jump starting the film industry as we know it now. In Georgia, and, and it was good. But I just remember Atlanta was like, your money's no good here. You guys come over here, and it was just like, it was really so good. But uh, the studio was kind of nervous because they had never done a movie like an HBCU. Mm -hmm. And so they were thinking like, well, with the story, with the story, you know, it's, it's what is this thing, a coronation? Why, is it, why does it feel like a musical? Why do we have musical numbers in there? And so we explained you know, what goes on at HBCU. And he said, listen, if you just if you just have faith in this, it's going to work out. But to our advantage, we got David Picker. I don't, David. Really, I don't know what a coronation is. 
And David What's put, a coronation? Well, so during homecoming at an HBCU, you have the, the campus uh King and queen. Okay, that kind of coronation. That I kind of that. coronation. And so they're chosen. But it's a regular show. It's a musical, basically. It's it's like it's like uh, all the fraternities have elected their king and queens. All the sororities have elected. So it's it's all of this activity, and it's like a regular show. So. But who's singing? Uh, man, there's so much talent that shows up to sing. So you have people singing solos. You have dance numbers. It's a regular show. It's very, very much like a pageant. Okay, like and, a pageant. And we ran it uh, very much like a pageant. So Spike directed the coronation uh, when he was in college, and I was a producer with Spike. Previous to that, another friend named George Folks. George Folks uh, directed a coronation. I was a production supervisor with with him, and then the same year that I'm working, that I'm uh, producing Spike's coronation, I was directing the coronation over at Clark College. So, okay, so you guys are biting, scratching, clawing, having fun, loving yeah, it, being right. being thrilled about just being able to do this stuff. But at what point do you stop feeling like this could all stop because you run out of money? And at what point do you think? this is a real career and we're going to be able to do this as long as we want. The interesting thing that happened, I feel, uh, Spike has done what, maybe 40 some odd movies plus. He's only known for his first nine. He's first only nine. known for Do the Right Thing. He's only known for School Days, Mo Better Blues, Crickland Crocker. But he's prolific, you know. The deal that we got was a negative pickup deal. And so what the student, we were like, listen, we're independent. Because this is the era of the independent filmmaker, you know. And so we're good friends with the Jim Jarmuches of the world. Any any independent filmmaker of the time, we were all like, nah, man, we're rebels, right? And so the, the industry knew that. And the industry was like, oh, snap. Okay, this is really real. So for us, uh, the studio was said, okay, what we're going to do, we're going to set you up at the bank, and the loan is gonna to come to your production company. So School Days had School Days Pictures Company. Mm -hmm. Mo Better Blues had its own company. Uh, Do the Right Thing had its own company. And so as a company now, we had to, to match everything a studio would do for us. We had to do it ourselves. And so by doing it ourselves, we learned how, you know, script we learned about cash flow mm -hmm. statements we learned about drawdowns so we learned every single aspect of making a movie and then the films because no one had ever seen a school days an hbcu before right the audience went crazy the audience was like beside themselves and so for each film we tapped into a different aspect of african-american culture mm -hmm. and because we did the studios wanted to work with us, and that's when we found out they used the same model. They used the same financial model. You guys set up the LLC. Mm -hmm. uh, the money's going to come through you, and then when you finish the film, okay, in your rebel spirit, that's what the audience likes. We're going to keep that rebel spirit going. They like the variety of films that you guys, so the Spike Lee joint becomes very known um, amongst uh, you know in our community, but it begins to ex expand and go worldwide. So that particular formula, uh, Spike has never had to look back as, right. as a result of that. So why that worked, I don't know. But uh, we did a total of nine films in 12 years. How many did you guys do together? Uh, we did nine. We did, we, did, we did nine together. And also uh, the company, now I'm vice president of production. So now I'm handling day-to-day you know, -day operations. And so we're doing the film, and then we're also doing the Michael Jordan commercials. Mm -hmm. So Iconic, obviously. Spike had seats in the nosebleeds, man. And so, but this is what I love about New York. But if you're in the nosebleeds in New York, your aspiration is to get down mm -hmm. as close as you can, mm -hmm. right? And so when Spike announced, yo, man, I'm going down, man. I got my seats, man. I'm going further down. I got the better tickets. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So one day we were in Madison Square Garden and Michael Jordan and the Bulls had come to town. I think this was Michael scored like 50 or 60 the day. So Spike knew the security guards. 
You know, because he always told me, hey, man, I'm a filmmaker, man. I just made my film. She's got to have it, blah, blah, blah. Things are starting to happen. So we go down, and everybody's gone. You know, the place is clearing out, and we're sitting there, man. We're just looking on the floor. It's Spike's like, man, one day we're going to get the seats right here. We're going to be right here, right? So they're courtside this time. So the security guard ushers us over. We go in. He said, come on, come on. Right? He takes us down the hall. It takes us right to the Chicago Bulls locker room. Opens up the door. They're like, yo, Spike is here. Yo, yo, what's up, what's up, what's up? And Spike's like, oh, this is my man, Monty, man. They're like, yo, Monty, what's up, right? So we sit down. So Spike is over here, maybe about 1.30 now. <laughs> okay. So maybe, so Spike is right here, and I'm sitting here, right? And in walks Michael Jordan. So Michael comes in. He's like, yo, I heard a lot about you guys. So Michael comes and sits right in front of us, man. And so, give us a handshake. So Spike's little hand goes up, and here comes Mike's big hand, like, oh. <laughs> so, so Spike's hand gets, disappears. <laughs> disappears. I give him some dap, and Spike goes on. And Spike is just still hasn't really learned how to do his, his pictures yet. So he says, man, all I can tell you is this, Mike. This is character Morris Blackman in, in my movie. I had to play him because I didn't have the money to hire the actor, and he always wears the Air Jordans. And listen, man, listen, if you give me a shot, I just want to direct one of your commercials. And so some members of the Bulls team were like, give him a shot, Mike. Give him a shot, Mike. Mike's like, chill, chill, y'all, chill, chill. <laughs> so Mike goes, I said, say, you want to direct some of my commercials? He said, yeah. So... He said, okay, look, man, me and my wife, we're going to look at the film this weekend. I'm not going to make no promises. If I like the movie, if she likes the movie, we'll take it from there. And was like, yo, man, that's all we need, Mike. We appreciate you, man. So here comes Spike with the hand up. And he, big, he disappears again. <laughs> so, man, we run back on the court, Madison Square Garden. Sure enough, Spike's like, hand in the fire air. Fire it up! Fire it up, man! Fire it up! Fire it up, right? <laughs> Monday morning, I go in the office, like 6 o'clock in the morning. I go in the office, man, and there on the floor, uh, Wyden and Kenny had sent over uh, all the storyboards, man. And this was back in the days of the fax machine, so I grabbed everything up, man, ran out of the office, ran over to his apartment. Yo, 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 Spike, 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 we got it, man, we got it. Look, so, ah! And uh, sure enough, so we did one set, uh, and Spike tried to edit a commercial, and 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 uh, Wyden and Kenny was like, "Yeah, Spike, you know, we love your work, and we're taking a big risk here, you know, by having a Mars Blackman character. Let let us get in there, man. Please let us get in there, right?" And so, no, no, no. And Mike was like, "I don't know." Well, I mean, Mike was like, "I don't know." Spike does it, and so so finally, Spike is like, "All right, let's see what they come up with." Send the footage back out to the guys, and they come back with the magic. And Spike is like, yeah. as the from there on, Spike started learning to trust, you know, Wyden and Kennedy, man. And we had uh, such a blast. And this was the pre-Mike. This was Mike before the Six Rings. And so we're making a film a year now with this negative pickup system with the studios, right? And then Mike is slowly... Rising. Surely rising. And so for, for us, man, uh, I started working on my book. Uh, I always felt like, you know, Mike going from having hair <laughs> to no hair, from one ring to six rings, and then always being a part of uh, 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 Michael Jordan behind the scenes making the, the commercials. I think one of the things that I learned that a lot of people don't know about Mike, Mike came on time, prep, ready to go, and Mike was like, Mike was ready to have fun, mm -hmm. right? And all of Nike was there. Every Nike would be there, uh, and we had to get everything done that day. You know, all of all of uh, all the departments were there for him, and we had a blast, man. And uh, little did we know that those commercials were taking off, and the Air Jordan would become like the number one brand. You know, and we sold a bunch of those those shoes, but. They don't really talk about. Yeah, just a few. They really don't talk. I think about, Jordan makes like a half a billion dollars you know a year I mean? now. Yeah, they really don't. They really don't talk about how we got started, and and Spike has even forgotten that. But I, I, I have no reason to lie. I just remember that that scenario, and that's why I'm really writing, you know, my story so that so that those little moments, um, 
that that we had along the way. And it it was really fun making those nine films, whether the music videos. Uh, in school days, Spike came up with a song, uh, The Butt. Uh, and uh, I remember that. You know, that song still plays around. Mm. But but for me, the, I think the joy of all of this was that I always try to tell young filmmakers, I say, you never know. I say, it's a crowded marketplace. It's a big marketplace. It's driven by, you know, scaling. It's driven by the TikToks of the world, you know, the Facebooks, the social media, et cetera. I said, but you, you have to progressively find uh, a great team of people to work with. And if you don't have a great team of people to work with, and you, even if you have to do it by yourself, find your niche. Find something that's going to connect and resonate, you know, with an audience, and and make make that work and really take it serious, you know. And a lot of times it's really hard for young filmmakers; they want the big dance and don't really understand, like you know, they don't understand ten by ten rooms in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, and 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 figuring it out, and being and being happy that like okay. All right, I'm 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 making movies, mm. you know, and uh, it's it's been a it's been a joy, man. It's been a, it was it was a joy, and I haven't spoken with Spike in a minute, but uh, we still we still talk about uh, a lot, and I've been trying. I said, Spike, man, we just got to do, you know, we got to do the, the the story, we got to do the doc on it. Oh man, I'll talk to you later. Click, and he'd be out, and I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> this dude. Man. All right, so you're back in Atlanta. So I came back in Atlanta. Uh, uh, Ron Ron Bivens uh, has a studio called Art Studios, mm -hmm. and his COO is uh, Ann Kimbrough, and Ann Kimbrough is someone I grew up with. Um, and so, Ann Kimbrough had always she's always like contacted me. Oh, what's going on? What are you guys doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? So I always would tell her what's going on. And a lot of people don't know when Ann was uh with the Cab County uh, Chief of Staff with Vernon Jones back in the day, she asked me to write a film initiative for the Cab County, and I did. So uh, I, I wrote that film initiative, and then I came down. And for me, I'm always like speaking or or that sort of thing. But this this last time, I came back to do a story that they started shooting the story all about Black Georgia high school sports from 1948 to 1970. And so that's I. That's the one. Uh, that's the one. As if we were ghosts. As if we were ghosts. Yes. And so what happened? Uh, and that uh, title comes from. That title comes from. Um, uh, I mean, we definitely got to get the person's name. But basically, the feeling is. Yeah, the feeling. Yeah. The feeling of it was uh, between 1948, 1970, with segregation. That during that time, African Americans had to find a way to develop uh, their sports programs. Athletically, so, yeah. Athletically, because so, there's a parallel. It was a segregated. It was a segregated world. segregated times, and so the feeling was okay. So we 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 found a way to do it. You know, we have our own associations. We have the uh, the GIA. You know, the Georgia Interscholastic Association. We have again, we have those coronations. Mm -hmm. We we have championships, and, and and sometimes if we can't find play uh, places to play, we 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 manage to, to to cobble together you know a schedule. So when segregation is over. And integration happens. The school system is like, you got to get rid of all that. Mm. And the feeling says, as mm. if we were ghosts, like we didn't exist for those thirty years or whatever. For those thirty years, and so mm. it's kind of hard to. And so people really all those traditions look. died with integration. Yes, yes. And the fight was that's fascinating. The, see, the fight was as you as you alluding. The fight was listen. Let's keep the history. Why can't we have the, the history? Like, we'll integrate into the system fine. Right. But And then what happened, the history got destroyed, literally. Hmm. Schools were burned, mysteriously. Uh, school systems would come in and take all the trophies, all the records, and dump them. Wow. And dump those, uh, dump those records. So and, you think there, there actually is no record of a lot of the athletes during that era? Yeah. But Other than uh, stories. But stories are starting to emerge. People did keep clippings. There were yearbooks. You mm -hmm. know, there were a number. Of, there were a number of things that were kept. You know, personally, and and from that came has come. Um, you know, a lot of information. And so reconstructing that history hmm. has been a part of uh, uh, a lot of people. So Ron, Ron, is this has, a documentary or it's documentary? It is documentary. okay. Yeah, documentary. Very cool. Yeah, but we've been finding footage. We found a lot of great footage. 
Uh, and I worked with a lot of young young editors, and we 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 uh, pulled it together. Now we have a streaming service, that sort of thing. So, you know, the the struggle continues, but it's it's just beautiful because you find out about uh, you know many of the great uh, athletes, you know, the Walt Frazier's of the world, and 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 many 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 others from Georgia. Well, this has been incredibly insightful. Oh, appreciate it. Yeah. I love it. I I could listen to these stories for hours. Maybe we can do another one. Oh, sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, and your, your story too, man. Shoot. Well, we'll go to you with my story. <laughs> I'm but happy I, to I, tell you my before story. Before we go, I would like to mention Jay. Yeah, tell me. Uh, Mr. Scott, man. So this guy is a crooner on Wednesday nights. He doesn't tell people. He is a crooner. <laughs> but I met, I, I, Ron introduced us. Uh, and and he's a real estate developer, commercial real estate, and that sort of thing. Uh, he's excellent at excellent at, at what he does. And he had a, a proposal. And when I saw his proposal, man, it was like eleven by seventeen, very colorful. What he wanted to do, one of the properties, uh, in in the Atlanta University Center, and what he wanted to offer there. And when I saw it, man, I fell in love with it. And I still hold on to it. And I, I kept a copy of it. Um, and since then, I have learned that he's doing renovations. You know, all around town with some of the major African American institutions. One being the uh, Ralph David Abernathy Church, and so for me, uh, it's it's so weird being back here. The history of African American uh, institutions, people, etc., has just been on my doorstep. And so for me, my goal is to is to get the funding and document and begin to uh, document it as I did and uh, as if we were ghosts. Uh, but now uh, there's a bigger picture here. And, and I want to make that contribution to that legacy. Since this is a podcast and it's not video, I feel compelled to say that Jay Scott is a six-year-old white man who <laughs> likes to croon jazz. 69. Oh, 69? What? He doesn't look a day over 55. I thought I was being really aggressive calling him 60. But he's a 69-year-old white man who loves to sing jazz and loves to work on these projects to restore um, you know, historically uh, black communities. Yeah. And uh, it's amazing work. He loves the city a lot. And I know, I know Jay very well. We're, we're close friends and um, the work that he, he has a lot of vision, yes. which is rare in the world, yes. right? Vision is, is, is not in abundant supply. Right. And Jay has a lot of vision and the things he works on, he works on from the heart. Yes. Yes, yeah. he does. Yes, yeah. he does. And he's the one who put us together. Yes, yes, and I'm very happy, uh, very happy that he has. And and uh, nice spot, y'all. It's a nice spot over here. And uh, engineers are really cool, and Sarah and everyone. So we, man, we had a wonderful time, man. Yeah, well, I appreciate you being here, and oh, um, we'll do it again. Awesome. Thanks, Monty. Oh, appreciate you. This has been the Black Hole Podcast. You can find us on Instagram. Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>